Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. This can be found on page 1009 in your pew Bibles. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised... Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Will you join me, please, in praying to the Lord? Father, it is impossible to overstate how desperate we are to hear from your Son. It's impossible to overstate how absolutely necessary for our eternal life it is, for us to hear your son's voice with the ears of saving faith. And that's work that only you can do. And you mean to do it through the preaching of your word. And so would you please fit us with ears to hear the voice of Christ. May we hear the word of Christ today with humility, receiving it as our very life. Father, would you cause the word of Christ to be for those who are yet outside of Christ, the voice of the good shepherd calling them to himself in repentance and faith. May it be for us who have believed the familiar voice of our tender shepherd continuing to shape us into his likeness. Would you do that work among us today by your spirit? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. More danger, more warnings. The more there is a danger, the more there is a warning. In January 2009, an Airbus A320 piloted by Chesley Sully Sullenberger left LaGuardia Airport in New York bound for Charlotte, North Carolina. You're familiar with the story. Probably about a minute after takeoff, the plane struck a flock of Canada geese, and as a result, both engines failed. And after Sully and his co-pilot weighed various options, only about five minutes after takeoff, Sully had brought the plane down onto the Hudson River and all 155 people on board survived. A movie was made about this event in 2016. I watched it when it came out. But I watched a portion of it again this week to see if my memory of the plane's warning system was as I remembered. 
In the scene from the movie, as the plane descends, the warning system is working overtime. There's beeping, there's a voice saying, pull up, pull up. And so as Sully and his co-pilot prepare to land the plane on the Hudson River, beeping in the background continues. And a voice repeats over and over, too low, terrain, too low, terrain. They get closer to the river, more warnings, more beeps. A voice starts calling out their altitude, 500, 400. Then there's a siren kind of sound, and the voice again, pull up, pull up, too low, terrain, 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 pull up, pull up, pull up. None of these warnings were issued only once. Why is it that Airbus equipped this plane with so many redundant warning systems? Because the people who made this plane were aware of the stakes. Failure to heed the warnings they programmed the plane to issue could lead to death. More danger, more warnings. Now you've been getting multiple warnings if you've been with us in the book of Hebrews this ministry year. And I think it's wise for us to ask the question, why has God the Holy Spirit, through the author of the book of Hebrews, seen fit to warn you over and over and over? What is it that God wants you to avoid? What's the danger if you don't heed these warnings? And how is it that you go about heeding the warnings? We're going to talk about all of those things this morning from these last verses of Hebrews chapter 12. Our text this morning is the fifth and final warning passage in the book of Hebrews. Now, are these five warning passages warning about five different things? No, all five are sounding the very same alarm. And that alarm is saying, professing Christian, do not fall away from Christ. If you do, you'll be destroyed forever. All of these warning passages are saying, professing Christian, do not fall away from Christ. If you do, you'll be destroyed forever. And there's a lot in that phrase I just used to summarize the warning. So let me unpack it. First, These warnings are issued to professing Christians. That is, people who would say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of people these warnings are for. So if you are not a Christian and you're clear that you're not a Christian, while you certainly benefit from hearing these warnings, they're not directly addressed to you. Second, the command of the warning is, do not fall away from Christ. What does that phrase mean? Fall away from Christ. The warning in all five of the warning passages. Well, these warnings are very specifically addressing the sin of apostasy. As I labored to communicate a few weeks back when I preached the fourth warning passage from Hebrews 10... 
The sin that's being warned of in the book of Hebrews, the sin of apostasy, is when someone who has professed to be a Christ follower for a significant length of time and whose life seemed to demonstrate the genuineness of that profession eventually says, I don't believe any of that anymore. I no longer follow Christ. So be clear. When we're talking about apostasy, we're not talking about people who got excited about Jesus and the church and the Bible for a little bit and then walked away. They're in bad shape spiritually, to be sure. But they're not guilty of apostasy. We're talking about people who, with eyes wide open, reject faith in Christ alone, the faith that they once professed to have had in a profound and protracted way. Professing Christians do not fall away from Christ. Third, these warnings alert the hearer to what awaits if he or she fails to heed the warning. In the warning passage in Hebrews uh, chapter 3, God says they will not enter his rest. In the warning passage in chapter 6, God says their end is to be burned. In the warning passage in chapter 10, we're told that the destiny of apostates is a fear, fearful judgment and a fury of fire that will consume God's adversaries. It is a fearful thing, God says there, to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what all five of these warnings are saying. Professing Christian, do not fall away from Christ if you do you'll be destroyed forever. That's the message in all five warning passages in this book. Now, with that groundwork laid, let's look at our text. Just five verses here at the end of chapter 12, the next to last chapter in the book. Verse 25 says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now, after having said in verse 24, just one verse ahead, that Jesus' blood the blood of the new covenant, the blood that makes him the mediator of the new covenant, the blood with which all who are partakers in the new covenant were sprinkled. The writer says in verse 24 that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than even the blood shed by faithful Abel. Because it's Jesus' blood alone that accomplishes for his people forgiveness of sin and purification from sin and access into God's blessed presence. And the preacher here of the sermon that is the book of Hebrews carries that idea of speaking from verse 24 into the first verse of our text, chapter 12 and verse 25. Jesus' blood, and therefore Jesus, speaks a better word. And so you see to it then that you do not refuse him who is speaking. I'm not sure if you've kind of come away from our time in the book of Hebrews with this idea, but this idea of hearing and listening, not refusing him who is speaking, to use verse 25 language, permeates the book of Hebrews. We see it in the first of the book's warning passages back in chapter 2. So keep a marker in Hebrews 12 and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Same book, we're just going to go back to chapter 2. A 
lot of you use Bible apps. I'm glad that you do. But I still hear some of those thin Bible pages turning, which is music to a preacher's ears. The first warning in Hebrews occurs in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and it's pivoting off of what was said in chapter 1. Chapter 1 is all about Christ's superiority as the Son of God, his superiority to the angels. And then notice how chapter 1, and indeed the whole book, begins. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. And those words that his Son has spoken to us in these last days are contained for us in the Scriptures. And now look at the first of the warning passages. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. The writer says, In light of all of that, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That is to say... Pay attention to what you've heard about the Son from the Scriptures, the Word of Christ. Hear the Son. Listen to the Son. I won't ask you to turn there, but in the second warning passage, the wilderness generation of Israel, nearly all of whom were guilty of apostasy, and keep getting held up in this book as people not to emulate, They're spoken of in Hebrews chapter 4 where the writer says, Good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Later, the writer of Hebrews in that same warning passage quotes Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The third Warning, and the most well-known warning in Hebrews, kicks off in chapter 5, verse 11, with the writer saying, he has much to say about how Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, but it's hard to explain to these folks because they've become dull of hearing. Now, why am I saying all of this? Why am I taking the time to point out this hearing, listening theme in Hebrews? Because I want you to understand that there is a way to have the sound waves of gospel preaching rattle in your ear week after week after week and for you never to have heard with the ears of saving faith. And so the writer warns us here in chapter 12, verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. As Jesus says over and over in the Gospels, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do not refuse Jesus, the one who is speaking. Do not refuse to hear his speaking. Hear him. Listen to him. Listen to God's Son. Now, as verse 25 of chapter 12 continues, the preacher is going to ground his admonition not to refuse to hear Christ, by reminding his readers yet again of the generation of Israel that was freed in the exodus from Egyptian slavery. Notice here, at the end of verse 25 of chapter 12, he grounds his admonition with an argument from the lesser to the greater, just like we saw back in the first warning passage in Hebrews 2, 1-4. And he's reasoning with his audience this way. Here's his train of thought. Here's his logic. If those Israelites did not escape... That is, if they did not 
escape God's wrath and judgment when they refused him who warned them on earth, then we certainly won't escape if we reject the one who's speaking from heaven. If you recall Pastor Caleb's sermon from chapter 12, verses 12 through 24 last week, we've been talking about two mountains, Sinai and Zion. Mount Sinai is the location of God's delivering of the law, including the Ten Commandments to Moses. And that delivery of the code of the Old Covenant happened at Mount Sinai. And in that law, God warned Israel what would happen if they failed to keep covenant with him. And those curses came to pass. The Lord punished Israel just exactly as he said he would if they failed to hear him, if they failed to believe him and to obey him. And they refused him who warned them from Mount Sinai. They refused him who warned them from earth, and they did not escape. Why then, as the author's argument goes here in verse 25, should we expect any different outcome when we refuse not a warning from earth, from Mount Sinai, but a warning from the one who has passed through the heavens? Of course we shouldn't expect any different outcome. Those who refused to hear the Lord when he warned from earth suffered his wrath. Of course then, those who refused to hear him when he speaks from heaven will likewise suffer his wrath, his eternal, unceasing, vengeful, just, fury of fire wrath. The writer continues in verses 26 and 27 with the line of reasoning he began with in verse 25. He reminds his audience in verse 26 that at that time, that is the time when God delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, the Lord's voice shook the earth. And indeed it did. Exodus 19 describes the scene when the Lord descended onto Mount Sinai to meet with Moses. The scriptures say there, there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. God's very voice shook the earth. But there's a greater shaking yet to come. And the writer here quotes from the prophet Haggai who foretold of that greater shaking. Yet once more. I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Haggai is speaking of the event the scriptures refer to as the day of the Lord. The return of Christ in judgment of his enemies and in resurrection and final salvation of his people. The day that will be a day of judgment, day of wonders as we've just sung. On that day, when the Lord descends, not only will the earth shake, but the whole of creation will shake, verse 27 says here. 
the heavens and the earth, the whole created order, which was all cursed after Adam's sin, will be torn apart, the Bible says, by fiery quaking down to its elemental parts. Peter says, quote, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And this shaking of the entire cosmos will occur so that, do you see it here? So that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And what are the things that cannot be shaken? What are the things that will emerge unscathed, unaffected by the cosmic destruction that will take place at Christ's return? Well, verse 28 tells us the things pertaining to God and his kingdom, including, isn't this good news? Including those who by repentance and faith are subjects of its kingdom and its king. The kingdom of God and its subjects cannot be shaken. It's like a huge clod of dirt that you put in one of those screen racks and the machine shakes it and shakes it and violently tosses it to and fro until all of the dirt has fallen away and what's left is a nugget of purest gold unshaken, unscathed. When God the Son shakes the heavens and the earth, the seas and the dry lands, all will be shaken, save for his kingdom. And so the writer, who kindly always tempers his warnings in this book with pastoral sensitivity, says to his readers, in view of that destruction that's coming onto all of creation, including those who have refused to hear him who is speaking from heaven, let's be grateful for having graciously and mercifully received citizenship in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And notice, the back half of verse 28 into verse 29, there's a way to live that is the only proper response to having received an unshakable kingdom. The writer says, in view of having been the recipients of this unshakable kingdom and in view of God's fiery, all-consuming wrath toward his enemies, offer to God acceptable worship. Now, I think we're going to see some practical outworkings of acceptable worship in Pastor Eric's message from Hebrews 13 next week. But the essence, listen, The essence of what it means to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe is to come to him through his son. It doesn't matter what piety you manage to work up, what righteous deeds. If those things don't come forth out of your life as the result of faith in God's son, they are not acceptable worship to him. The only worship that is acceptable to God is that which comes from those who are in his son. Only those who are in his son worship the father with the knowledge that they're accepted because they're in the son with whom the father is well pleased. If you try to come to God on your own or through some other belief system, thinking all roads lead to Rome, it must follow that all roads lead to heaven. 
Or if you try to come to God through some amalgam of Jesus plus something else, or Jesus plus anyone else, you will be consumed in God's fiery judgment. Note the phrase at the end of our text. Our God is a consuming fire. That's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 4, where the Lord says of himself, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. But I think there's an account from the Old Testament that the author of Hebrews is alluding to with this language. An account of two men who didn't offer to God acceptable worship and who were consumed with fire from heaven. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 10. That's the third book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Maybe that part of your Bible where the pages are still largely stuck together. <laughs> it ought not be. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book of the Bible, and we'll look at chapter 10. Leviticus, chapter 10. Here Moses writes Now, Nadab and Abihu. The sons of Aaron, that's Moses' brother, the first high priest, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, in the very first verse of this chapter, we see two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offering unauthorized fire, or in the Hebrew, strange fire, on the altar of incense in the first larger room of the tabernacle, the holy place. And upon offering this strange, unauthorized, unacceptable fire, the Bible says that fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Note how similar... This is to the fire that came out from before the Lord at the end of chapter 9, in verse 24. That fire from the Lord consumed the sacrifices on the altar. That miraculous fire consumed what was pleasing to the Lord. This miraculous fire in chapter 10 consumed what was displeasing to the Lord. So the natural reaction to this event, a strange event, is to ask what was strange or unauthorized about this fire? The Bible doesn't tell us plainly. The only thing that the Bible tells us about the reason for the divine capital punishment against Nadab and Abihu that I think is in mind in the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 is that they offered unauthorized or strange fire note which he had not commanded them. They offered unacceptable worship. And they were consumed in God's fiery fury. Let's go back to Hebrews 12. In light of what we see in our text here, in light of what we saw in Leviticus chapter 10, in light of how God has revealed himself in the whole of the scriptures, if we've got any sense at all, we'll worship this God with reverence and awe. 
If we've got any sense, an episode like that with Nadab and Abihu will tell us that we're not dealing with a safe, tame God. He's good, as Lewis reminds us, but he's not safe and tame. He's a jealous God, a God who's jealous for what belongs to him, including your worship. And he's worthy of the worship he prescribed. He's worthy of acceptable worship, worship of people who know they come to him only by repentance and faith toward his son. And this son, this son is the great high priest, as we've been saying for the majority of our time in Hebrews. And as the great high priest of the new covenant, he offered the only sacrifice that atoned for sins. He offered the only sacrifice that actually resulted in the forgiveness of sins and the true inward purification of his people. And what was the sacrifice this great high priest offered that accomplished these things? Our forgiveness, our life, our access to God, our purification? His own blood. He's both the priest offering the sacrifice and he's the sacrifice. Hebrews says he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And having offered his own body and blood for the satisfaction of God's holy and righteous wrath, now, hallelujah, he brings his people with him into the very presence of God. Hebrews says we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Yes, we enter, we come Can you think of it? With confidence into the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, the offering of his flesh on the cross. Open the curtain of the holy of holies in heaven where God dwells. And now we have access through Christ. But notice that it's only through Christ and It's only through Christ alone. The worship that God accepts is offered by those who know they come to the Father only by means of the Son, not by their own merit or piety, not now and not even after you've been a Christian for 30 or 60 or 90 years. Our confession will always be, Father, I come by the blood. And if you come any other way, you'll know all too truly that our God is a consuming fire. Now, how do we make use of these five verses? First, I want to speak to you who are outside of Christ. And I'd ask you to do me the courtesy, if you haven't listened up till now, to give me just these next few minutes. You're here anyway. Unbeliever, what would you think if you had a spectator's view of the cockpit on the day when Sully landed his plane in the Hudson? 
And instead of Sully and his co-pilot taking heed of the information they were getting and acting on it, after these flock of Canada geese had flown into the engines of a plane and shut both engines down and all the warning systems were blaring, what would your reaction be if you saw them just drinking their coffee, talking about their weekend, laughing with each other, but otherwise making no change whatsoever about the information they were giving? What would your reaction be if you watched them have that reaction to the warnings and then you watched that plane go down and kill them and all 155 people on that plane? You would say, what idiocy. You'd say, what a waste. (laughs) Unbeliever, please hear me. Every week, you get a warning. Every single week, alarms flash and sirens sound and a voice says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. And if you ignore these warnings and enjoy your coffee and enjoy your friends and enjoy your life and all of these other lesser things, if you ignore these warnings, it will be to your eternal peril. And as you dwell eternally in the lake of fire, don't think that the alarms and the warnings will stop. They'll be of no good to you then. But you'll continue to hear that you ought to have repented and believed the gospel. You'll hear, unbeliever, that you ought to have repented and believed the gospel. And there'll be outer darkness. And there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I'm wondering, high schoolers, I'm wondering, middle schoolers, I'm wondering, college-age students, if you will be so foolish, I'm wondering those of you in your 20s, in your 30s, even those of you who are advanced in age but have yet to believe in Christ, I'm wondering, and I say this in love, will you be so foolish is to ignore these blaring warnings. Yes, these warnings are written to professing Christians, but as we've said before, there's not some eternal destiny for those who apostatize and then some different eternal destiny for those who never believe in Christ. The same lake of fire will be occupied by both. So unbeliever, will today be the day that you say along with blind Bartimaeus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Will today be the day that you repent from your sin, that you acknowledge your need for a Savior and turn from your sin and believe the gospel? I plead with you not to have these warnings ring in your ear for all eternity. You don't have to. Christ receiveth sinful men. If you'll turn from your sin, he'll save you. He'll save you. And you'll receive by his mercy and grace a kingdom that can't be shaken. How about for us, brother and sister in Christ? How do we make use of these verses? Well, first, as we've been saying all along, the first way to make use is to let these warnings do their good work in your life. 
Now, I know there's a tension when we talk about apostasy. Because the only people who can commit this kind of apostasy, this kind of sin, are those who once said they were Christians. And we've been saying unequivocally that the person who's truly become a Christian will never apostatize. So let's just put that tension on the table. But let me try and cut through the fog and just say very plainly, if you are a genuine believer in Christ within the sound of my voice, your response to these warnings in Hebrews, including the one today, will be, thank you, Father, for the grace to warn me. I don't want to be consumed by your fiery judgment. I don't want to refuse Jesus who is speaking. So please keep me. Please hold me fast. Please never let me fall away from Christ. That's the attitude that the believer has in response to these warnings. Because for the believer, these are among the means that God uses to keep us in Christ. It's all the Lord's doing. He keeps us, not we ourselves. But among the means he uses to keep us is to warn us of the eternal damnation that awaits those who don't remain faithful to Christ all the way to the end. So let these warnings, brother and sister, have their good work. Let them sober you, not make you fretful, not make you anxious. That's not the way to receive these warnings. Be sober. Don't be laissez-faire, prideful, arrogant. I'll never fall away. Oh, no. Sober. And grateful that the Lord would warn us of so hellish a danger as apostasy. Second, believer, how do you go about obeying the only command in our passage today? See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. How can you avoid even beginning down the path that would end in your apostatizing from Christ? How is it that you can listen to the one who warns from heaven? Well, to answer that, of course, you need to know how and where the one who warns from heaven is speaking, right? If you're going to listen to Christ, you got to know where you can go to hear him. And here's where you hear him. God wrote one book, just one. It's this one. These 66 books. This is the only book able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's the only book that contains the word of Christ as Paul says in Romans chapter 10. So take heed to this word if you will not refuse him who is speaking. That means reading it for yourself, yes. I think you should rejoice that you live in a country and in an age where access to the Bible is easier than it's ever been at any stage in the history of the church. There are hard copies galore, who knows how many Bible apps for your phone. But if you think that the only way or even the primary way that you obey the command to see that you don't refuse him who is speaking is to go get your Bible and find a quiet place to pray or read, you've missed it. The Lord means for us to heed this command together. I've been struck as I've studied through Hebrews this ministry year and how communal this salvation is, not individualistic. I could take the time to take you to places in Hebrews to make this point, but we don't even need to leave our passage. When he says in verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, he uses the second person plural. 
Now, if you New Englanders were grammar snobs like the ones I grew up around in the South, you'd know that he means, hey, y'all see to it that y'all don't refuse him who's speaking. This is a, a plural command intended to be primarily obeyed, not individually, but corporately. What does he say? If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. Let us be grateful for a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. You heed the command not to refuse who is speaking from heaven corporately, not primarily individually. Let's put some meat on these bones. It's almost summertime. I kind of think it is summertime. (laughs) School's almost out. How often will we see you from June through August? Will you plan your vacations around the church? Or will you just kind of work the church into the nooks and crannies of travel and sports and the lake? The community group year is almost over, but next fall, will you tweak your work schedule, your kids' activities, your hobbies, and all the rest so that you can get together with brothers and sisters in a community group who are getting around and under the book from which we hear from him who warns from heaven? Now, I blush a little bit even to say these things because I know it can all come off as very self-serving, because as senior pastor, it just seems like I can stand to gain by you all never missing church. And make no mistake, I do love it when this place is packed, and so do you, by the way, many of you have said. But I'm telling you all of this because I'm charged from God with shepherding your soul. And when you think little of this gathering, you who are professing Christians, when you think little of this gathering as reflected in your decision-making, you've decided to start driving your car down the road that has warning sign after warning sign that says, Stop! Apostasy ahead! I can't fathom a person falling away from Christ who is all-in and remains all-in in a gospel-driven church. But when I have seen people whom I fear have apostatized, to a person, the gathering of the covenant people of God has slipped ever lower and ever lower on the priority list. So yes, hear the voice of Christ by reading your Bible at home. And what's more, hear him when the Bible is read and preached to all of us together, prioritizing the assembly It's how you ensure that you'll hear the Son. It's how you ensure that you'll heed the command not to refuse him who is speaking. Third and lastly, dear believer, how shaky does your world seem to you right now? Some of you have big things going on that lots of people know about. And I imagine some of you have big things going on that no one or almost no one knows about. And I want to encourage you to remember, brother and sister, that when your world seems shaky and when you feel like you can't get your feet 
under you. Remember that by God's grace, by God's grace, you've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And this truth is designed to elicit gratitude, isn't it? Let us be grateful for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The fact of the matter is that when everything that you're worried about right now is a smoldering ash heap, having been judged by Jesus Christ at his return, the unshakable things of the kingdom of God will remain. You think things felt shaky to the Hebrews? They had endured a hard struggle with sufferings. They had been reproached. They had been afflicted for their faith in Christ. They had been imprisoned for their faith in Christ. They had had their property plundered. They needed to hear that the kingdom that they were being exhorted to hold fast to, the kingdom that they were being warned, don't defect from this, was an unshakable kingdom. When the Lord shakes not just the earth but the heavens, his unshakable kingdom will remain. And so be grateful, believer. Whatever is going on, whatever it costs you for your faith in Christ, be grateful. Let us be grateful for having received by grace entrance into God's kingdom through the death and resurrection of his son, a kingdom that you belong to now and a kingdom in which you'll live eternally in the presence of the king of that kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken when all of creation is shaken. If. You take heed of these gracious warnings. If you see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking from heaven, the Son, the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, please give these brothers and sisters of mine grace not to refuse Christ Grace not to refuse to hear from Christ. Grace to put themselves around and under the word of Christ. And, oh, Father, would you please give grace to these friends of mine who are outside of Christ. Give them grace to receive the kingdom by turning from their sin and believing on Jesus. Thank you for these warnings, O oh God. Please do Your intended good work among us by them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.